You haven't even paid me from last time. I haven't watched Halo either. I'm going to summarize Halo Season 2 based on the Watching Now Halo podcast from Couch Soup. This is going to be fun. So Chief could be crazy. <laughs> Cortana's had a facelift. We're a bit mixed. Quan and Soren's story is really boring. Is, is it over yet? Reach is f***ed. Reach for the stars. You all are gonna die. Spartans have a new leader called Ackerson. More like Dickerson. Apparently McKee is alive. She didn't die on screen, so she's probably not dead. Key's definitely not dying. Right, right, right. And the flood is coming. Is the water on this planet? What do I know? You should be listening to the Watching Now Halo podcast everywhere. Podcasts are available. Where's my money, Drew? From the team that brought you the award-winning show Retro Replay and the Emmy-nominated comedy series Con Man comes a new idea just crazy enough to be good. Introducing Couch Soup. I know, I know, you're probably wondering, what is Couch Soup? Well, Couch Soup is content for your hungry nerd soul. Daily articles from fans, not pundits. Weekly podcasts that contain a multiverse of opinions on all things pop culture. Exclusive videos and weekly live streams where we laugh, scream, and sometimes have technical difficulties. All created by folks like you. The gamers, the film nerds, the TV bingers, comic book lovers, bookworms, and pop culture enthusiasts, all in one giant bowl of beautiful, disgusting, soupy goodness at CouchSoup.com. All Things Alice. This podcast will explore the cultural phenomenon of Alice in Wonderland, as artistic landmark and global symbol of inspiration and imagination. I'm your host, Frank Bedore, the author of the Looking Glass Wars trilogy. Let's explore what is it about Alice? Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show. So this week, I have a very interesting guest, a writer who reached out to me about five years ago to ask for some advice. And she has gone on to write more novels than I have. So we're going to talk to her and figure out how she surpassed me. Was it my amazing advice or is it most likely her immense talent? Her name is Jendia Gammon, a very gifted writer and artist, by the way. She writes sci-fi, fantasy, and horror. Also, it's worth noting at the top that uh, you may know her by her alternate pen name, Diane Dodson. She has so much talent, she can't contain it with a single publishing persona. I'm excited to catch up with her to hear about the advice I might have given her five years ago and what advice she has for other writers. So let's jump down that rabbit hole and welcome Diane Dodson, Jendia Gammon to the show. What a nice surprise to uh, to have you reach out after all this time. Yeah, I was thinking about you and then I was like, oh my God, so what is Frank up to? You know, because uh, congrats again on your, on your marriage. Wonderful. Oh, Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. It, uh, You've had a rough several years, so anything to celebrate. <laughs> I really appreciate that. So um, you've done 
a lot of things that I really admire and that I've done as well in this publishing sphere, whether it's self-publishing or, you know, finding a traditional publisher. But even more importantly, you know, writers are not good at promoting their own work all the time. They're not all sometimes not not that social, sometimes not that savvy about how to get their work out there. And I've seen you at Comic-Cons and speaking engagements and a Twitter fanatic. (laughs) So uh, I used to be. Yeah. Yeah. We all have to kind of adapt constantly to a changing social media environment as we're learning in real time. So I, I need to clarify something, uh, Diane Dotson, right? Now, is that so, your real? Is that your real two, name? So they have two pen names: um, the self-published J. Diane Dotson, J. Diane Dotson, yeah, and Jindia Gammon. So Jindia is a combination of Jennifer Diane Gammon is my maiden name. So I had self-published under J. Diane Dotson, and I had a couple of book deals before I got an agent. And so those books are out this year, The Shadow Galaxy and The the Amethyst Lantern under that name, but that will not be my pen name going forward. And I have a lot of projects already out under Jindia Gammon, like the latest Enter Zone, Mm. which is a wonderful magazine everybody should subscribe to. And I have a story in there and I have stories in multiple anthologies coming as well as magazines. And so that is my my traditional pen name going forward is Jindia Gammon, and I won't be going back to Dotson. But with a new release coming out, you can still find me under that name. So okay, so Gammon- talk about talk about the theory and the reason behind, you know, uh, a pen name because you know uh, it's hard to get one's name out there ever, let alone with multiple names. I mean, if you're a you know, super famous writer. Sometimes, sometimes that happens. But what's the uh, what's the thinking for you to use these pen names? Well, doing the split from indie publishing to traditional is one factor, but it isn't the only one. I have lost both my parents, and my mother passed away earlier this year, and I really wanted to dig back into my own heritage the Gammon family, you know, um, from East Tennessee with our Irish ancestry and things like that. So in a way, I'm honoring my parents as well and their memories. And I wouldn't be the writer that I am without them. My dad, who was a storyteller and indie published author, my mother who worked in publishing. And it was sort of destiny that I would not only become a writer, but I would also eventually form my own publishing company, which I am doing with my husband, Gareth L. Powell. Currently, you know, we're working on that and hope to be open next year. So that's a whole nother topic we could talk about. But I I really wanted to kind of distinguish between those two phases of my life that I had done self-publishing of the Questers on Saga, you know, and then a couple of deals under my belt before moving forward actively in traditional publishing. So I have I have books on submission right now with my agent, one of which is a high fantasy dragon and the other is a thriller sci-fi horror. And I'm working on a very campy Southern California-based horror novel at the moment due in December, and, you know, that's very raw and funny. Uh, so I I really want to show the world that, you know, Tindia Gammon is here. I'm writing in multiple genres for multiple age groups, for adult and young adult, and potentially eventually middle grade as well. So it's just, for my, for my purposes, it was a split of meaningful life moments and returning to my heritage. And Jindia was an old nickname, 
And strangely, you know, like a friend of mine liked that and would call me Gentia. It wouldn't call me Diane. Mm. And I thought that was really great. And then I found out on the way back from visiting my mother's grave in June, driving through the city where he lived, the day I decided I was going to be Gentia Gammon forward, I found out he passed away that day mm. as we were driving through. Wow. And I was like, this seems almost like this has to happen, right? So, um, and I liked it too, just for SEO purposes for the web, because it's in the, it's Gentia Gammon's easier to find and search, you know, which yeah. is one of those things you don't really think about, but because I'm a, I'm a content manager for, um, you know, it's a biotech career related website. So I think of those things. Right. And also I know a couple of British authors who have three pen names and I'll explain why they do it. So one of them is John Courtney Grimwood and he writes as Jack Grimwood, John Courtney Grimwood. And I think John McGee or something like that. And then there's the author Stark Holborn who writes science fiction under that name, but two entirely different names for two other types of books, one of which is historical fiction and one of which is more sort of cozy mystery. So they each have three. And I think it's important that if you're going to write something wildly different, that you might want to consider a different pen name because you develop a certain persona for each one, right? And then if people come to you and expect something and it's confusing. But then again, I also do feel strongly that as Jandia Gammon, I want to kind of be like Neil Gaiman and Stephen King and write everything I feel like writing. And this is me and this is my name. And that's who you're going to find something sort of slightly off kilter and disturbing, but fascinating in each genre I write in. That's kind of my brand is sort of this fantastical. Sometimes it can be a little scary. Sometimes it can be truly wonderful kind of spectrum, but it's, it's, that's me. That is my brand, you know? And if I were to write, let's say, historical fiction, I would probably pick a third name or something like that, you know. But then again, I, I do feel, though, that science fiction, fantasy, horror, those three are my brand. And that is the Jindia Gammon brand. So branding is important. Do you think uh, being gender neutral is uh, when you're picking a pen name is uh, some I notice some authors do that? Um because if they're writing a lot of female characters or male characters, or they're writing in a sci-fi space that there was a, you know, prejudice, you know, against certain genders and certain genres. I, and I notice there's a lot of women who write in writers, women writers in YA uh, or middle grade. Um, so it's just, I'm just curious what your, do you have a thought on, on whether you have something that's neutral? Right. So I think traditionally, like 19th century, you know, coming into 20th century, quite often you would have initials only if it was a woman writer so that they could pretend to be, you know, a male writer because you weren't given the same space, right, historically. Uh, although Mary, Mary Shelley, bless her, kind of yes. sucked her gun on that one. And without <laughs> her, we wouldn't have modern science fiction as we have it, you know, yeah. and maybe not horror either. So, um, but then I think of one of my favorite authors, uh, L.M. Montgomery, mm, right? Sure. Books. She didn't have to be Lucy Maud. She didn't have to be L.M. She could have been Lucy Maud Montgomery, I really feel. But she, at the time, you know, in early 1900s, getting those books out, it was perhaps more favorable for, favorable for her. And maybe she actually liked that. But I know another um, genre writer, modern, uh, Laura Lamb and L.R. Lamb one writing science fiction, one writing fantasy, definite split. You know, you've got true space opera science fiction, and then you have dragons. Right. Um, and, but I do feel that 
it isn't necessary to do that, that we are definitely in an era in which that is your preference. I, you know, considering the Questers on Saga was self-published, I view them as a success. And I was J. Diane. And the reason I picked J. Diane with the Jennifer, you know, as a J was because I loved L. Frank Baum, who wrote the Oz books. And you and me 14. both. You and me yeah, both. So One of my favorites. Absolutely huge influence. Those 14 original Oz books on me and my wacky worlds, including like, you know, with, with Lewis Carroll on Wonderland, you know. So those two definitely shaped me. And, and Wonder Alice shaped my early reading history, particularly. So we could talk about that if you want to at some point. Um a very well, special memory there. Well, let's just so. go into it. No reason to hesitate. We uh, we can jump around as much as we want. So so tell me about Alice and the early influences. Uh, was it something that your parents um, introduced to you? Uh, because they seemed oh. like they were a big influence. And by the way, <laughs> I'm going to jump around because I think yeah, that was, story about your parents and your heritage and changing your name, you know, you can, in just little time we've been talking, you can feel how important um, that upbringing and their influences has been on you and how you want to honor that. And you seem to have really honored it in your work ethic and the stories you're telling and the determination. I imagine Thank all of those things came from your parents. Thank you. They, they both were quite different people from each other and I'm much more my father's daughter, but at the same time, uh, my mother's pragmatism, I borrow that from her. My father was the dreamer and the journeyman and the writer. And, you know, my mother was like down to earth, the editor, the linotype operator, because she did that back in the day. And so, like, I had these influences and like a lot of the mythology that I read was directly due to dad's love for mythology. And I eventually, you know, I became part of the National Classics Honor Society at university because I took uh, Latin and then, you know, Greek and Roman architecture, anthropology, all these different classes related to classics, even though I was a science major and uh, that's dad's influence too. But then again, like my mother's um, attention to detail is something that while I'm not as good at as she is, I know how important it is. And I, I'm looking at everything that way, including when I start publishing other authors work, that will be what they get. They get that attention to detail and that care because it is important to make sure that your voice is heard, you know? And um, so it, but they didn't introduce Alice to me. My sister did. Okay. So I'm the baby by almost 10 years. I had three older siblings who were teenagers starting in the 70s. So it was a hot mess when I was born. Um, <laughs> I bet. Absolutely. My parents, bless them. Uh, so, and they were middle-aged at that point, right? So here I have come along, late bloomer. But my sister and I, uh, she would read to me when I was a little bitty thing. And... She read Alice in Wonderland to me many times. And so, of course, in the story, you know, like like you hear about Alice and her sister, I'm like, instantly I had like white blonde hair and crazy, messy, curly, white blonde hair, right? And I was like, oh, I'm Alice. I'm obviously Alice. You know, <laughs> this is me in this world, you know? And so I immediately latched on to that. But then having an adventure on my own, having adventures on my own, separate from these legendary older siblings who had who were just all three of them dynamos in completely different ways that was important for me to do uh and of course i identified with dorothy in that regard having your own adventures and being independent was huge to me and so i loved alice for that and i loved 
the dreamlike and strange qualities of Wonderland and Looking Glass World. Now, I actually really love looking through the Looking Glass more. Yes. And for multiple reasons. And when I was <laughs> when I was in sixth grade, we had to choose something to read aloud in front of the class. <laughs> Guess what I chose? <laughs> Guess what I chose? Uh, I'm assuming you chose uh, Through the Looking Glass. I chose Jabberwocky specifically. Oh, the poem. Wow. And I performed it. Oh, oh my God. I was like all into it. I was a super nerd. Like we're talking, I mean, major, <laughs> major nerd. They didn't know what to think about me. And then to be up in front of these kids and just be full gusto, having memorized it, you know, and just performed. I even also made my own illustration of it because I was always doing art when I was doing writing at the same time because I'm an artist. So and it was just absolutely horrifying, but it was it was empowering too at the same time because I was doing something I was related to something I loved. I know I loved the Jabberwock, you know, and I, I you know, that was a nice monster, right? Like I I was fond of monsters and I still am, and I write monsters and and creatures and robots and everything. But that was absolutely the first moment of like true dramatic person, you know, performance in front of a crowd, and so it was a defining moment. <laughs> I imagine that has served you very well. I also uh, had a little bit of theatrics in my past. And when it came time to get in front of an audience, especially of middle grade kids at schools, when there's 200 or 300 kids, and they all come into the auditorium, and they're all excited because this author is going to be there. They don't have to take their math class. And <laughs> it they the teachers calm them all down. And then you're supposed to jump in and start talking about your book. And, you know, a kid will say, whatever you do, don't read from your book. It's so boring. So then you're stuck with, okay, what do I have to do to engage them to pull them in? And you have to be theatrical. You have to be dynamic. And once they're on your side because you're funny or you're entertaining or you're outrageous, then at the end, I would always talk about writing or I would show... I would show the manuscript as all the all of the yes. edits that were marked up and say that's a crucial point. Yeah. Yes. So that you you so that the librarian and the teacher and the principals would be happy about it, but you already have them on your side. And yes. the acting and the theatrical presentation was critical. And I talked to a lot of writers about that. You, I want you to rehearse it. I want you to have props. Yes. I want you to look right at those kids and 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 don't worry about being, you know, perfectly appropriate so the teachers, you know, if, as long as you're a little so off center, they're going to love you. Right. I think that if people can smell when you've practiced too much, you want to be a little yeah. sort of ad lib there and cuz kids love that and it, it, there's an element of chaos, right? That's sort of like this energy that you can channel and engage everybody with. So let me ask you something because you you, t- you talked about the whimsy and uh, of the story a little bit. Um, but a lot of people interpret the story as horror because of what happens with Alice shrinking and expanding. Right. And so there's a lot of different interpretations. You have the same interpretation I think that I have. You know, there's all these creatures and there's all this chaos. But in the middle of it, Alice is, you know, keeping her head. Uh, as long as yep. the Red Queen's not around. So I think I've seen horror versions in pop culture, 
but I, I did not read it as horror, but quite a few people have. What do you make of that? The thing about Alice in both stories is that she's finding out about herself. And that can be very scary, no matter yeah. your age. And I think using the mirror as, you know, kind of a comparison, she's looking in a mirror, she's reflecting upon herself. That's her looking glass. And I think a reader coming into that may not be quite ready to look in the mirror. There might be monsters on the other side of that glass that they haven't slain yet or dealt with or got away from or escaped. So I kind of think that's where it's, it's coming from this, how comfortable are you with yourself and your own journey? And I think that that can be scary and, and seem as horror to some people. I mean, some of, some of it is, you know, on the paper, yeah, that's scary. The Jabberwock is quite terrifying. Let's face it. You would not want to like run into that fella in the dark alley, right. you know, and have them be hungry or something. That wouldn't be ideal. But at the same time, knowing that there's just sort of this allegory and this journey, that that's what matters more to me. But I, not everybody's comfortable going into that space. Yeah, I think the uh, the finding yourself or self-identity in that story is, you know, really you know, really powerful and um, always, always resonated with me. But the fact is, I channel that a lot. And I think probably because of Alice, uh, I channel that in a lot of my characters, whether it be science fiction, fantasy or horror, they're going through a journey of self-discovery. And at times it is terrifying. And at other times it's wonderful in ways they didn't anticipate or, and yet, and like in the end, even at the Amethyst Lantern, the main character has to become a leader. She's not, she's a 14 year old in this future lunar punk society faced with a threat from our time that she has no scope, no point of reference. She's got to rally not only herself and her own insecurities, but an entire team, team of teenagers to help stop another apocalypse. So like you, you dig into yourself, you dig into the light within and, you know, do you think that's why Alice has resonated for over 150 years, that thematically it is very adaptable to a new era? I do. A new, yep. And that we keep reinventing uh, it to reflect what's going on right now. For me, the world is so upside down and so chaotic and yeah. facts are not facts anymore. Um, and logic is not logic. And so an illogical world of Wonderland and that adventure Alice is on and the idea that you will be found guilty before you've even had the trial feels of the moment, feels really exactly does. what's going on. But what is it? Why that story? Why why Wonderland and why Alice? That... Uh, looking Glass too, because I've heard the phrase so many times in the past few years oh we're really through the looking glass now so i think that you know any any fracture point uh in human history where there's been a massive event a world war or crisis pandemic you know you name it situation i think that for one thing we have the instant reaction of wanting to cling to something familiar but then we we look at that thing and we we suddenly see a new meaning of it we see ourselves again in it but not as children but maybe we could see ourselves as children starting over again because we've had to reboot and reboot and reboot again through major loss death of our families and friends um on a big scale and a lot of people don't want to look at it like that you know they don't want to see they want to go back to normal they want to go back to their world 
regular world. We don't want to be in this weird new world again, you know? And then other people were like, you know, my old world was crap. I, I want to be in Wonderland. I want to make my Wonderland. So, and I think some people have really tapped into that, which is kind of what I've been doing with my stories. I decided I want to make so many stories that they're all here floating out of my head like bubbles. And I think like we just, we're attaching meaning because we kind of feel like we're we're dangling and we need to grab for something. So, and, and finding all these different interpretations fascinates me, but it makes sense in the context that we're just, we're trying to figure this out, you know, as a society and as individuals. Yeah, and I think that idea of, of Wonderland, you hear winter Wonderland a lot because it represents a magical, happy, you know, beautiful nostalgia. place. Yeah, yeah. That, you know, nostalgic, yeah, a, a, a escape, the idea yes. of escaping into a better place. Um, and so, yeah, you hear that, you hear down the rabbit hole, you know, yes. we're all mad here uh, yeah. uh, all the time. Um, and I just, and, and it's just interesting that it's... Um, you know, it finds its way in politics and, well, certainly in, in culture and music and movies and television shows. And But she seems to be, Alice seems to be a muse for us creators and writers. Mm -hmm. And I mean, mine's pretty direct, but, you know, and all the people I've interviewed, uh, they're often talking about just what you suggested, a time in your life where, where you were introduced um, and you took that inspiration, that theme, and you put it into one of your one of your stories. And um, well, sometimes that wasn't even intentional. Sometimes right. I look back and go, "Oh my God, it's obvious now." Yeah, I'm on the outside looking at it, and going, "Well, there it is." Of course, you know? <laughs> there's this sibling relationship. There's this girl who has to go into an unprecedented situation with a lot of monsters and weird stuff, and the line is right there. You know, but you know. That, that template of having that at a young age is so interesting. And, you know, I wonder what it must be like as an adult to discover Wonderland. Um, that would be amazing to kind of get that perspective, right? Where you've come in, you've heard the phrases, but you never actually read the story. And then you read it fresh. I mean, I would love to kind of dig into that with someone and explore that. So I don't know if you've had that experience, but I'd be interested to know. Well, you know, it's, I think people pull this collective history of Alice into their thinking. So you can't separate out all this years of right. um, influence. Yes. So yeah. usually people are, they're trying to figure out, well, what is the influence? Is it really the original or is it the Jefferson Airplane plus the Beatles song plus the Matrix plus yeah. this? And, you know, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a tapestry Right, because um, you hear the phrase "red pilled" all the time, right? Yeah, and it was it was you know eat me and uh, and drink me. Drink me. So yeah. uh, it, it it's going to co continue to morph and um, influence uh, culture, which is kind of interesting. Why the public domain exists, and you know you right. talked about the Wizard of Oz, and uh, you know for me Gregory Maguire's Wicked was a was a was a big deal, and um, you know I right. called Gregory. Uh, when I started writing the Looking Glass Wars for advice, um, and and he said, do a musical. <laughs> because he had written, I think he had sold about 500,000 books uh, with the first, with the first nice. run. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but that wasn't anything compared to, you know, what happened with the musical. And then he sold. Right, true. Then he sold. Yeah, that was a true phenomenon. Now, it's interesting, too, to think about, like, at this point, you know, stories eventually become myths. And I think 
it's it's quite possible that Alice is starting to enter mythology, as is Dorothy. You know, like these are new myths, and and as is Luke Skywalker, right? These are our our new fairy tales versus ones that are ancient. Um, so these become the new myths and the new fairy tales, right? So I find that really interesting, and I know that it's kind of lightning in a bottle. That it's kind of rare that we have a story come along that sort of captures that, and it's just so relevant across you know, multiple genres. Well, I'm, gr- I'm glad you brought that up because I, I, I'm, I'm interested in uh, myth and folklore in storytelling. Um, and I, I do like that idea of a new myth. Uh, one of the archetypes is obviously, you know, good and evil. But lately I've been thinking about what what is it that thematically people are looking for? Yes, good and evil. But it seems to me that People are wondering what's real because the world seems so fake. And when facts are not facts, then what do you have to hold on to? And with the divide of the country. um, And so it's like, hey, I think I'd like stories that have to do with something that's real that I can believe is real. Um, What do you think? Well, I've seen kind of both things going on where people go back to this sort of, but then it's all fantasy, right? Because nostalgia tricks us. It's, it is the pill that we take when we choose to not want to believe reality and like our, our stream of reality and and what we've been through in our lives and culture is, is itself a constantly evolving and nebulous thing, right? We, if we are, if we stop the present, like what are we now? But we often think in terms of, what was like, oh, that was a better time. But if you really were there and you experienced it, was it really? Right. Probably not. So, you know, it's a matter of kind of collectively wanting to forget, wanting to toss the sting and sip the honey, right? So there's that coming into play. And I see that a lot. I see, and then now we have the wonderful, and I'm putting that in quotes, (laughs) AI coming online and making question reality even more. Yeah. So um, to say nothing of taking some of our writers' jobs that, and artists, that's a whole nother topic. But then we have to think about kind of like in Blade Runner, which is its own fairy tale in a way, dark fairy tale of, you know, which is sort of like Pinocchio, you know, who's the real kid um, very much. And just questioning of like, what makes us human and how do we retain our humanity in a world which is increasingly AI prevalent and and things like that. So it's all kind of happening at a very interesting time in our history where technology is rapidly accelerating rate and global change. And we're, we're more unified and more separate than we've ever been. Technology is unified us in ways that are would seem r- miraculous, you know, but at the same time, it's easier to split off into our own little pocket wonderlands. So right, to speak. right, right. Well, you have, you know, you have a deep background in science. Um, you write science articles, you work for a right. biotech company. Um, so you studied ecology and what yeah, else? Ecology is my, my greater love, like more than biotech, but you know, you write where you get the work. Yeah, of course. <laughs> but so you're bringing up AI and you're, and obviously you, um, you write a lot of what you call a space opera, which mm-hmm. is kind of a subgenre of science fiction. Yeah. And I think of Star Wars, by the way, as uh, definitely, or Dune, one of my favorites. Yep. Another another author named Frank, um, by the way. Yeah. 
<laughs> that's all two. these connections. That's what does it mean? <laughs> Frank Baum. Fr uh, right. Yeah. Frank there's Herbert. This, this theme. Yeah. I'm going to have to talk about. Um, the Franks. Yeah. The Let's be Frank. Like have an episode <laughs> called Let's be Frank. That's, that's, what, that's what this show should be. So how do you take um, that technology and and cultural re relevance and craft your worlds? Like what what's the thinking? What's the approach? You know, we have to suspend disbelief. So it has to be grounded in things that are, you know, obviously human and identifiable, right. but they got to feel like possible. Right. So like in the Shadow Galaxy is a collection of short stories and poetry and there's sci-fi fantasy and horror and some fairy tales like set in Appalachia to, as well that they're they're everywhere but one of them in particular I think is kind of relevant for right now and it's called Roder R-O-D-E-R mm -hmm. and it's kind of a heartbreaker story but it involves a human woman and a robot she discovers and she falls in love with so you know you know we're like the movie Her and things like that, but we become attached to these artificial people, right? In science fiction, it's often a trope, but it also is another looking glass moment of understanding our own humanity by considering the other of the artificial person. So mm -hmm. I think that building from the grounding of you, you're always wanting to appeal to someone's humanity, no matter if you're writing something that's set in deep space or underground in a cave or in some strange realm that appears on a foggy night like one evening in Fogvale which is in here which is sort of like that fairy tale vibe where Miranda ends up in this realm you know that's full of these interesting beings and um you know it's you're grounding it to make it seem more relevant and more real but you also have to introduce that strangeness that feeling of uncertainty and to do that you need to project you think ahead and you think ahead in terms of like, what if, what if this fantastic thing happened or what if this really terrible thing happened and how do we react or how does the character or the creature react to that? Or are they themselves instigating it? You know, those kinds of things. So I always like to frame the science uh, in everything that I write, because I do like to insert ecology in fantasy, science fiction and horror. In fact, the dragon book that's on submission right now, there's a lot of ecology to it. There's a lot of environmental interaction you know, between different species, you know, and Frank Herbert's Dune is a good example of using ecology and in, in that. So I like, I don't always stick to like what I know, but I like a grounding just so that a reader can kind of connect with something real world, even as they're being transported to another place. And I um, like how you mix science fiction with fantasy um, and the blending of those genres in some of your work. But how would you describe the difference between high fantasy and sci-fi, um, obviously, you know, there's all those space components and there's aliens and things like that. But from a from a world building perspective, in terms of whether it's creating the magic or the technology behind the weapons or the science, what's your how, that's it's kind of do you do a lot of research? I mean, on the science thing, I would think you'd have to research on the uh, on the on the high fantasy, you really have to let that imagination run wild. Well, to a certain extent, it depends on how grounded you want to be. Because, for example, I took uh, a longsword class uh, to kind of, you know, like in I guess it was, a, was it Burbank and Glendale, and to to get a feel for like, okay, this character has to learn to wield a sword, 
you know, and she's built more or less like me. I need to know how that feels and how it works and what you would need to do. So there is research that you need to do to kind of, if you're, if you're doing the sword and sorcery kind of thing, but you know, the technology in most fantasy realms is magic. You know, that is the tech, but you do have other forms of technology. You do have swords and you do have staffs and things like that. It depends on what, what level you want to play in, right? Is this a magic sword or is this just a sword that you, you know, is a regular sword, um, those kinds of things. So the technology, a lot of times people like to say that magic is technology we haven't invented yet, which there's something to that, right? Because we're often inspired by these fantastical stories to come up with something that would have seemed like magic 100, 200 years ago, um, you know? And that was one thing that, I thought Star Trek did really well sort of tapping into that because on the face of it, it seems like science fiction, but they were doing some pretty fantastical things, you know, we just couldn't do that. But it's nice to sort of come around the world thinking that way. Like you think, okay, I've got technology and physics or the skewering of physics in some science fiction, because, you know, depending on how hard sci-fi it is versus introducing any fantasy element into sci-fi, that spectrum of, it's strictly adhering to science as we know it versus projecting something that could be that we just don't know yet. You know, mm-hmm. there's discoverability and possibility. So I, there's different, different approaches. Now I, because I have a science background, I have a bias toward wanting to dip more into that in my work, no matter what genre it is. Whereas my husband, Gareth L. Powell does not have a science background and he writes science fiction novels. So you know, you can do some research and I do encourage it because for one thing, scientists love when you ask them. <laughs> um, so like the thriller I just recently finished, I had to talk to somebody at NASA about something they're, they've been working on because I needed to have kind of a real world parallel or at least comparison. And I wanted to make sure that I had some things right. And so they don't mind at all, like reach out to them. So, you know, it depends on your level because I, I do know some sci-fi writers who just have never done the research and it really, that's gutsy. It's, that, I, that kind of freaks me out. Yeah. I wouldn't be able to that. do that. I'm like, yikes, you know, <laughs> but at the same time, they might be coming up with things because they don't have the bias that could help us, that projects their other perspective uh, onto something that could potentially help us in the future that scientists could then take. So that fascinates me. And what about with um, the character's dialogue? So if it's in a sci-fi story and you're dealing with scientific or science-centric things that are going on, you're going to be putting words in their mouth. Garden. You know, yeah. And then in a fantasy world, it could be an invented language or right. uh, terminology that you could completely invent. So... But at the heart of it, it's how do you how do you pierce the humanity in the magic and the fantasy, the sci-fi, the technology? But that's what people really care about: the melodrama right. of the space opera. Um, and of course, let's not forget, you know, it's always nice if there's some hot sex going on. <laughs> Sometimes, <laughs> although for like teen fiction, you can't really go there. So uh, I'm just in kidding that because regard, you have. You have tension between, you know, raging hormones and like trying to figure out who you are as a person. But I think that that's always kind of what I like to tap into. I like to tap into characters who are trying to figure out who the heck they are. Yeah. And am I, am I really the weird one? Am I the bad one? Am I the good? Where am I? Who am I? And so I keep going back to that well and asking each character who they are. 
Yeah. And that is one approach to making characters is you could actually pretend you're interviewing them. I know a friend of mine does that. He will set up an inter- a fake interview of each of his characters to ask them what their favorite things are and, and what scares them. And I think that's a brilliant idea for building characters because it really grounds them as part of the world. You know, that is world building is making a great character. But, you know, you could have the most incredible setting out in the stars or in another fantasy realm, but it's not going to matter if the characters don't capture the imagination. And so you do have to add that human element and the interactions with other uh, species or people, depending on your worlds and create that dynamic of tension or distrust or friendship or love or whatever it is. And that's just so incredibly crucial to any story that you write. Yeah. Thematically, that's what we, that's that's what we humans crave, and that's what we relate to. So, you uh, you need to find that thread. I I think I, I mentioned the hot sex because I read an interview, or no, there was a review, and I can't remember which book it was that you wrote, but you'll tell me. And they said, oh yeah, and there's a couple of very hot steamy scenes. So I thought <laughs> I thought oh that must be the melodrama of the space opera that oh she's- yeah so. That's in Luminiferous, and it's not gratuitous because, you know, throughout Galadea, it's this sort of, you know, she's she's an alien who looks human, and she needs to help. Humans. Just tell us, you know, just frame what you're talking about. This is the the four book series. Questers on Saga. So the yes. first one, yeah, okay. The first one is Heliopause. The yep. second one is Ephemeris. The third is Accretion, and the fourth is Luminiferous. Okay, so in your book. final, in the final, in the right. uh, of the series, okay. I mean, there's sex in the other books, but it's, you know, it's not quite as explosive and meaningful as that moment. You know, like there's kind of fade to black moments on some of them and, and some a little bit more overt. But then you have throughout the series, like the first in Heliopause, the main character is a man named Forster. And there is hint of this this character out there who is this ageless woman and who is that? So then she's fully introduced in the second without her, none of the people in the, in Heliopause would have anyways, <laughs> she's necessary. And so when she is introduced, she is innocent and she is discovering who she is and she falls in love with someone, you know, and then they have their moment. Um, and then that doesn't work out. She ends up with someone else eventually and they, they have tension, you know, but there's a, there's someone kind of in the background influencing her when she's at her most wounded that that she is communicating with on a sort of a subconscious level. And that person she finally meets in the fourth one and and the bond that they have. So is galaxy, you know, affecting, you know, it's, it's deep love. It's a true and deep love. And so when they finally meet and they're friends and they have to go on these horrible adventures together that just test their lives and threaten them and almost kill them and things like this, um, and realizing finally, like, you know, I, I really love you, you know, and then having that moment of just, you know, fire and, and deep love. It's it's very passionate. And I remember a couple of people said, guys, so they broke out in a sweat. Yes, that's what <laughs> that, that was. That was one of them. One of the reviews. So that really cracked me up because yeah. I was like, well, I guess I did my job yeah. there. But, you know, it was the same time like you read the whole book and it's it's kind of devastating. You know, it's like it's perfect, but it's it's devastating. And in a lot of ways. You think about the Terminator and how um, Sarah Connor and you know, the relationship that she had in that, and that was not gratuitous. You, that was a big payoff, right? That mm-hmm. like that that deep love, and you felt it. You felt it was threatened, 
And it was, it was literally world making or breaking. Right. Yeah. So well, that this- was kind of where, where I was tapping into for luminiferous, very similar kind of moment. Yeah. I mean, really high stakes that bring two people together. And with those stakes is a level of vulnerability and that you can kind of see each other because you depend on each other, certainly in that movie. Hey, I'd like to take a step back for a second because uh, we met in 2017. We talked on the phone. And I don't recall uh, how we met each other, but I do recall you asking for advice. And I just want to tell my listeners that, you know, as a writer who's been published and who traveled a lot and, you know, I have a lot of aspiring writers uh, ask me for advice and tell me about their books and I never hear from them again. And one of the big things is, you know, is, well, write your book, finish your book. I mean, yeah. because then you have a thing. And uh, and so you you called me and I said whatever I said. I'm going to take all the credit for your success because you have all these books. I must have said something super inspiring. But anyway, for me to see you, uh, your books start to come out over the years and you build up your uh, your portfolio of, uh, of work and your readers has been really quite uh, delightful and a joy. So what were those words of wisdom that I shared that motivated you to this deep level of writing? So it's funny, like we had a mutual contact named Ed and I was... Ed Dector? No, Campadonico, I think. Oh, yes. Oh, Ed, right, right. Oh, So I was wanting, I know I I had written the Questers on Saga's Bones when I was a young teen and then my English teacher was was mailing publishing companies for me. You know, I still have some of the letters they wrote back. They're like, well, you are young, but if you're really serious, we can move on. So I kind of chickened out though and then rewrote and rewrote. And so those, those two books became eventually morphed into the Questers on Saga. And so I had finally, after just years of tumult and moves and then becoming a parent, you know, like, which, you know, your time is, is not your own. Um, I finally came back and a friend of mine was encouraging and was like, well, you know, you should, you should finish it. I'll read it. I'm like, oh, that's really cool. So I did that. And then I'm kind of floundering, like, what do I do with this thing? Like, how do I get this out there? How do I get published? What do I need to do? I had no idea, even despite, you know, the years prior, um, I knew things had changed, right? Um, so then Ed was like, oh, well, you might want to talk to to Frank Bauer, you know? And so I'm like, okay, cool. And I didn't know who you were from Adam, as the saying goes. I had no idea of your history at all until later. And I'll get to that in a minute. So here we are having this conversation and, and you were basically like, well, tell me about heliopods, you know? So then I, I just tell you about it. And he goes, that's the best verbal pitch I've ever heard. And I was like, oh, that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> and then later, later I'm like, listening, oh my God, he's a producer. You know, like, <laughs> so that was a real confidence boost. Like I felt boosted anyway, but then coming back around to realizing that you hear pitches all the time. And then to say that to me was just really wonderful. And I really thank you for that because it did give me confidence. And you read it in a very rough state and, you know, you encouraged me. You said there's a good story here. Absolutely. You know, get it, get it polished and get it out there, you know? And so I began that whole process. I, I originally wanted to self-publish because I knew we were at a state in which we could have a very high quality self-published book. And I knew nobody would want the saga the way I wanted it. Um, I just knew that before going in. 
And that, you know, of course, was the correct thing. But I did, after much cajoling, go through the query process and I came close with a number of agents. But there was just, I finally was like, you know what, not with this series. This is too close to me. I have to do this my way. Uh, And I didn't realize how much work that would mean and how much self-promotion and all this. Um, But I did it and I'm glad that I did. And because I got myself out there, and again, we talked about this at the beginning of their talk, you do have to get yourself out there for readers to find your work if you don't have a big publishing house behind you, right? Because you could be anyone, right? So that was, it was a lot of work. It was satisfying and it taught me a lot about publishing, about because I'm going to start my own imprint. I already have that sort of I've been through it, right? I've been through the tough stuff and I recognize what you need, but you gave me such that great push at the right time. And I thank you forever for that. And then we reconnected in 2019 when I was attempting to get some work in Hollywood. That didn't go so well. And I ended up moving back. And of course, then the pandemic started. So um, I was grateful for what we talked about then. We were talking about show Bibles and things like that. And that was good practice to kind of come up with those things. It was fascinating for me. And that helped me think in a little bit different way about making characters and describing them. And that became relevant for making synopses for being on submission with an agent, which I now am. Yeah, I was just going to say that I was just going to say that um, the same process of creating a synopsis and a mini Bible um, uh, for a TV show is almost exactly the same for yeah. a book and a publisher or an agent who's asking, you know, what's the one liner? What give yep. me a paragraph? Thematically, what's the tone? What's the audience? All these the questions. Titles? Yeah, yeah, all, all these things that they they want that you have to do on spec um, yep. to to get their attention. Um, so. That's uh, well. I'm 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 happy that I steered you and and uh, was one of many people influencing your your success. But let's go back to that first book and the difficulty because um, just what were the choices in terms of being an independent publisher of your own books? Uh, and I was really struck by the quality of your cover. And the the right. way that you dealt with the fonts and the title these are these are really delicate, important issues uh, that really help people choose your book. And publishers get really anal about their influence on that because I I I ended up using a lot of the artwork that I had commissioned, and um, Penguin had to license the art from me to put oh. on my cover. Uh, but I was so thrilled because I loved the artwork and I thought it was right. better than anything they could have come up with. Um, but, right. you know, but they're really good at it. And I'm not taking that away. They're great at right. it. And I've made a few bad mistakes by trying to influence covers, especially in Germany, where I, I saw their artwork and I just said, that can't be the best artwork you could come up with. But <laughs> turns out that's what Germans like. And well, there's that, right? I there's screwed that up. Issue. You know, there's a taste issue that that I think like tapping into culture is is a really good point and something that I have to consider when I start publishing other authors books. Right. So for my own purposes, I having had the art background, I already had a very defined sense of what I wanted, you know, the look that I wanted. I wanted to to give kind of a nod to 
uh, Vincent DeFate and John Berkey, classic sci-fi covers that looked painted. I didn't want them to look too CGI, right? So I wanted a classic look that was really vivid and and gorgeous. So, and the artist Leon Tucker delivered, you know, the, the front and the back of these, pa- the paperbacks, the wonderful spread of art, right? So um, working within that framework was a challenge sometimes, but, you know, you figure it out, you get the concept sketches, you say, no, this isn't quite right. You go back and forth and, and tweak things until it, there it is, there's what you want. And then in terms of layout, and design that's an entirely other facet like i don't know is this uh voice only or uh, yeah mostly i i you have yeah. been showing books i i haven't taken these clips and put them on youtube but i i will at some point so happy to happy to right. see so like when i you look at the covers of the questers on saga mm-hmm. yeah what's it a wrap around yeah gorgeous. gorgeous everything is purposeful yep um Great. And then my website guys did the the font and layout. Um, I did the interior layout with uh, Vellum, which is a really powerful software. Let's see it. Let's see the interior. So let's see. If you look into, you know, it has just um, mm-hmm. table contents. Mm-hmm. Everything is instantaneous acknowledgments. Yep. And then you jump right in and yep. really nicely yep. done. Beautiful. You know? Beautiful. Perfect. So what you want is if you ch- to go independent you want it to look like something you would go and pick off a shelf at a bookstore absolutely you want it to look as though someone else did it someone else made it right like so each of them is you know i you you put money into it is where i'm going with this like you i see a lot of people starting to use ai art which i am not fond of um for multiple reasons because i like to pay artists for their work and i like you know this is their living right so i want to you know Leon Tucker does beautiful work, not just for books, but he does, you know, game design and things like that. So finding a great artist and, you know, the gal, Kim Herbst, who I I convinced Android Press to hire for the In at the Amethyst Lantern mm-hmm. because I'd worked with her before. Mm-hmm. I commissioned her to do a piece of art for Galadea, actually. And I was like, she would be perfect for this book. And I made my case and they're like, you know what? You're right. So I'm delighted by that. Yeah, it's gorgeous. It's a yeah. job. Well, I just didn't, I'm very particular about that the quality of the art and just conveying what that book is, what mood, you know. But then, you know, there's something to be said for really lucid, simple covers as well that are mostly font based, for example. I think those kind of fascinate me um, as long as they don't get too trendy and everybody's doing them because I've seen a lot of really font heavy covers in the last few years. Yeah. Like, I don't know that it's a taste thing, but at the same time, you don't want to look, you don't want to look too wildly different that you can't fit in, but you also don't want to look like a copycat. I've mostly seen those font based books in, um, in YA. Yeah. Um, uh, And I I also, I also really like that. I just don't trust myself that that's, that'll work. But um, okay. So then after you've, created the entire book um, and printed it? Or did you do these, uh, was it was it um, digital only to start with or were you no, able to- No, I did paperback and ebook through Ingram Spark. Okay. Like Lightning Source, because they have global distribution and they would, you know, it's print on demand for the paperbacks. Okay. So that when you order a copy, if it's not in stock and sometimes Amazon, for example, will get a limited stock. 
of, I don't even know what their math is, but when you run, when it runs low, you can tell there's only a few left, but most of the time uh, it is print on demand. So it's like freshly printed and shipped off from the distributor directly. Um, and then they, they upload the eBooks, multiple forms of eBook, you know, everything from Kobo to, you know, Kindle and all the other formats to every, all the major booksellers. So it's, it's slick. It's really straightforward and simple. And, you know, the, the hardest part, honestly, is like making sure your files are where they need to be. And so I, I became quite familiar with the customer service people at Anchor. Right. <laughs> like, what's the deal with this? I can't fix this. So um, that is not for the faint of heart. That can be very frustrating, but you do kind of get in a pattern of being used to it and dealing with it. And they're there to help, you know, that's their job. And it's it's so satisfying to have the finished um, book, and now for you the finished series. Yeah. Um, how was this experience f- more for the for the the love of the series, the creative part of it, um, or were you able to, you know, make enough money that you would do it again, or is that why you're going to a publisher? So tell me tell me about the thinking and. Uh, and what the what the financial realities of something like this? The fin- the financial reality is that you will spend a lot more doing this than you would have imagined. It is expensive to do it well, to do it right, unless you're only doing ebook. And then, in which case, you don't have to factor in the royalties are better if it's ebook only because you don't have to deal with supply of paper and and that sort of thing. And all the costs that go into making a book, which have, by the way jumped significantly in the past couple of years. Um, so supply chain issues and other factors beyond, you know, the scope of this call, but it is expensive. Um, the benefits is that you have complete creative control. That's highly appealing. Now I want to make a note here. I don't just slap stuff up. I had two editors and I paid them and that's not cheap either. And I think it is the most worthy expense aside from the cover art period, because you need somebody to read through it and, perhaps offer advice and copy edits, and then you need a proofreader to come back Absolutely. and go through it again. 100%. I mean, I totally. had editor, copy editor, and then a proofreader. And then beta readers. And then beta then readers, have, for sure. Yeah. Get them to those folks because they're they're going to notice, they're going to find something that none of the rest of us found because we all have looked at it too many times. Um, and, and they might have questions and be like, you know, I like to send it to beta readers before it's finally crystallized. Of course. Because if there's something really off, I need to know sooner. But sometimes certain beta readers get it later in the process. Um, but usually it's pretty early for me. Like once I have written the manuscript, edited it a few times, read through it, you know, made, and then I'll give it to some people, a couple people, very trusted, who tell me like it is, right? You know, sugarcoat a thing. So that's important too. I think you need beta readers because when you have, when you're doing it yourself, you don't have this whole team working on getting these books out you know it's really you and you need to you need to invest in the right people to help you make these books the best they can be because you know people will absolutely respond if it's poorly made if there's glaring errors things like that now you have a traditional publisher um having that experience will you ever go back to self-publishing that's a good question and a little complex considering I'm starting my own imprint, right? So, which I want to publish other authors. It's not for me. Um, but at the same time, I could theoretically put my own book out under my own imprint at some point. But who's, uh, who's, are you going through Ingram's as your 
who's your distributor? The distributor will probably be Ingram simply because that's what most of the most small presses like Android and Trepidatio use. They're using Ingram. Um, most Ingram is the main distributor of North American books of all kinds, traditionally or non-traditionally published. So that's the main game. There used to be more than one. And I think that's no longer the case and which is, yeah, you know, kind oh. of not awesome, but uh I think we do better when we have more choices, right? So, um, but it's through through them, I would be very particular about quality, like the, the paper type. You have all different choices of weights of paper and colors of paper, what material they're made of. And there's some new ones that are out now, like Groundwood. I haven't explored those, but like you could see the difference. Um, this is sort of a creamy interior for the Shadow Galaxy published by Trepidatio versus, a, you know, a brighter um, by Android Press, and it's all in the taste of the publisher, what kind of, what you're going for, what the look is, what the brand is. And so I, these are my first two traditional debuts this year. So congratulations. Like That's Thank very you. exciting. Yeah. So the Shadow Galaxy is out. It came out March 3rd from Trepidatio, which is an imprint of Journal Stone. And then the Inneth the Amethyst Lantern is out from Android Press and young adult so it's my first young adult novel and it's sci-fi fantasy mix and this of course shadow galaxy is cross genre um and you know quick read uh lantern's longer because it's a novel so i i might go back and i have a short story collection of called quest retails related to the questers on saga and i need to decide at some point do I want to self-publish that? But but to be honest with you, the goal now having an agent is to get a pretty big publishing deal and get the point of that being global reach because it's just a different world. Like no matter how hard you try with indie published books, and even if you have global distribution on different websites, getting that out there, I don't have a publicity team, right? And even if I did, it wouldn't match Big Five Publishing. It wouldn't match, you know, like, Hachette and, you know, Penguin and all those. So it's just, uh, it depends on what you want to do. If you're doing this just from the joy of it and you don't mind, you know, you want to do the small circuit and go to all the cons and have a table. There's beauty in that. And it's, it's great. And you can sell a decent amount, but you will be sort of capped in your potential, the potential for the audience and potential for income. And of course you have your own expenses to add in. So you have to think about that. And then also, you're just more likely with traditional publishing to have someone discover it and perhaps option it, you know? Um, yeah, because you have, you have book scouts, you have, um, you have a big sales team that yeah. visits the independent bookstores on a regular ba basis and they talk up the book right. where it gets displayed is a big deal. But even that pales in comparison to what they ask the author to do. And so building community uh, of readers and fans, whether it's through schools or Comic-Cons or speaking engagements, is, uh, is really the most crucial because once you have that community and those early adapters and those people that really back and love your work, then when you have a new book come out, you've already have, they're your foot soldiers, they're your right. beta readers, they're out there, you know, spreading the gospel. Um, so it's important that's to, the, it's yeah, important community to is huge. create that community. Yeah, and that's, 
that's something that you can do even if you're not like me. I mean, I'm obviously very gregarious. I'm out there. I'm an extrovert writer, but I know a lot of writers are introverts as well. And you can still do that as an introvert. There are avenues to do that. And you, your comfort, your comfort level is very important. You know, if you have, if you have dedicated, you know, events that you have to do, you know, there's ways that you can, you know, you have to be accommodated. Right. So, but building the community is, is great because they're going to come get your book. Now, what, what's really interesting to me is um, people discovered the Questers on Saga in multiple ways. I had some discover me at a table at a con, right? Just a table and a banner and just literally selling, throwing my pitch every other minute, right? You have to have that sales pitch down of what, what it is and why they should buy it, right? Among all the other flavors, why should they buy your book? But so you learn that really quickly in real time. Um, how how did you how did you come to um, to uh, renting a a space or a table at a Comic Con? Who who inspired that? Because that's something that I that I did in two thousand five, and I was blown away by how many people wanted to buy books because I thought it was a comic book convention only, right. and people loved reading, and I thought this is this is the place to launch novels. I don't know why all the yeah. publishers aren't there. So how did you realize that that was such a sweet spot to get your book out? Well, I was a nerd myself and I had been to some conventions and I also just frankly asked other writers, like what works for you? So look to people who are successful and gather constantly that information and don't stop because it changes with time. We have to adapt. And, and obviously in 2020, we couldn't have in-person events. Right. So then we had to pivot quickly to online and, and that actually turned out to be pretty great. And those are still continuing. Uh, so there's a lot of hybrid events or strictly online. I'm part of a summit that I had an, you know, a workshop for like a couple of months ago, and I'm going to be part of again in October that is completely online, but people from all over the world will join and they're paying, you know, for different to see different writers' perspectives and to learn how to write books and and publish and promote and all these different things. And I think though that comes from being a nerd and having seen it and realizing and watching people buying books. So you're like, oh, okay, so that's what they're doing. Cause I I take note at every convention I'm at. And you know, I haven't had a table in a, a few years, but I've been a panelist. Um, and that's another way of getting support right, right. you're mm -hmm. in front of a huge audience uh, either on or off that have never heard of you or your work before but you're describing how to relate to whatever i've been on star wars panels i've been on you know how to write psychologically rich characters you name it i've been on i made a panel for the nebula awards based on an article i wrote called the ecology of world building for the science fiction writers association so then i pitched that as a panel they said yes i'm also going to be Part, I don't know if I can say this. I'm going to be part of a pretty uh, impressive um, writer's workshop at a university this coming spring. And I will be leaning into ecology for genre fiction. So like whatever your specialties are, you lean into that. But in terms of that, the actual boots on the ground sales, you know, it's very much of you have to decide because it's controversial. Do you can you invest the money to be there? Because it costs a lot of money depending on the convention, like some conventions, like I started out small at Condor Con in San Diego. It was intimate, but there are a lot of book buying visitors, right? Yeah. So uh, San Diego Comic Fest is great too. Now Comic Con, you invest a pretty significant chunk of money into a table or booth, but if you could split it with another writer 
honestly, that's the best thing because not only does it save you both money, you have you have a booth buddy who can take over if you need to go do whatever, eat or take a break and uh, also get rid of what we call booth barnacles. <laughs> People who just will not budge from your table and want to talk you up. So, I, uh, you know, I, I, I'm a fan of the smaller cons, uh, yeah, the wonder cons, because San Diego is just too many shiny objects. Right. Um, and the smaller ones are, are creator driven and right. they're more exploratory and they'll take risks and trying things. So exactly. especially when it comes to um, selling, um, you know, if you can sell enough books, but uh, the thing that is so true is the pitch. You have yep. to get that pitch down to 30 seconds, 60 seconds. And it's like, okay, this is it. I'm, I have 30 seconds. Right. People's walking by. I go 10 seconds. Okay, come back. 10 seconds. Here's what I'm going to tell you. about my book. Yeah. You know. So, um, yeah, you have to be- in... that beautiful cover because, the, oh, that looks cool. I mean- be honest with you, also having your display being very visual yeah. of interest. Yeah. And it doesn't hurt in my case to have my double chocolate brownies, but that's another topic. Mm -hmm. But, you know, having, you can have a poster made of your book cover that's larger so it captures attention and put it in an acrylic frame. Yeah. So there's nothing obscuring it. And then people will be like, oh, that looks cool. And that's how I've sold a lot of books. Yeah. It's like, first you draw them in, then you give your pitch. They go with it or they don't, you know, but that yeah. visual is essential. And then you tackle them if they don't buy your book <laughs> and pull you their wallet You bring out the up. lasso. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to bring it back uh, and end on an Alice uh, note. I'm, I'm curious, down the rabbit hole uh, in often means a, a time suck of some sort, um, something that's pulled us in that we're, whether it's a television show or you know, on Twitter, uh, what is your down the rabbit hole of late? Hmm, that's a really good question because I have so many interests that I usually have a whole spectrum of rabbit holes. <laughs> okay, well, it's basically like a gopher yard, anyways. <laughs> they okay. pop up, I go down. Um, so let me think for a second because I've I've been obviously researching a lot of stuff related to publishing and how to be a good publisher. So that's that's kind of dry though. Um, in terms of story and obsessions. I, I know that you're really into dark chocolate. This is a fact. And honestly, that is, that's a lifelong thing. Like literally like they couldn't get me to have as a newborn, they wouldn't take formula. Mm -hmm. the doctor was like, add chocolate. And that was it, you know, yeah, Okay. quite uh, since being a newborn. So anyway, yeah, chocolate here. Do you have uh, a particular um, kind of chocolate from a region? Because now everything's craft based and- Yeah, you know, there... it's, I try them all. As long as they're dark chocolate, they're my favorite. Um, but I try different percentages of cacao. And Seamus Blackley, do you know who he is? Mm -hmm, sure. So he's a friend of mine and and here, like he has a lab. He spent, he grew a cacao tree and actually went from bean to bar recently. And I'm like, wanting to claw in his windows, like, where is my sample? <laughs> so that was, that's his rabbit hole. And I love that. So I actually am a big foodie and I do actually research food all the time, food blogs and, and cookbooks. And you, there's food in every story I write. It's part of world building. And I've written articles about that. You know, you, you need food and drinks in your, wherever your stories are taking place and whatever dynamic got to eat, right. Got to drink. So that's that's always a wrap. Food's always my rabbit hole. But at the same time, currently, I'm loving kind of revisiting 
sort of early 20th century, really early 20th century works of fiction, mm-hmm. not just Dallas and not just Oz, but some of Ella Montgomery's stuff and some sort of like pre and um, and co-World War One, because I feel like there's not been enough about World War One and how essential and, and crucial a moment that was in human history and how it changed everything. Right. And to have a pandemic at the same time right. with the 1918 influenza pandemic, which terrible, right? Like I, I, I'm glad we didn't have to deal with both of those things, right? Yeah. In the past few years. So, but that, that in their era is so fascinating to me because of what things were like before and what after and the fiction reflecting that. So that's kind of a, a rabbit hole at the moment, that era. And if you were, I normally ask people, if they were a character from Alice in Wonderland, who would they be and why? But since you and I are both fans of the 14 Wizard of Oz books, oh yeah, if it was one of the Oz characters, who would it be? Oh, oh that's really hard. Because <laughs> oh, I love so many of them. I mean, let's face it. Wouldn't it be nice, although I love food, if I could just eat a mist cake or a cloud bun like Polychrome the Rainbow's daughter and be done. <laughs> yeah. And get all back to dancing around yep. on my t- in this fabulous gown. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I love Ozma a lot. Uh, I loved uh, when she was kidnapped. Uh, that sounds terrible, but let me get to why. <laughs> because she seemed sort of too too powerful at that point. Like she had been tip and then back and forth, right? Been the boy and then the girl and then took her role as leader of Oz. And she seemed a little too into herself okay a little little cocky well she gets kidnapped a powerful fairy queen seems incredible right i actually loved that because you finally kind of saw more of her humanity than her fairy side Mm -hmm. which you didn't see and since she was tip enchanted as being tip um so that fast i i still really like ozma of course they love dorothy um but i mean i'm just going to give you a hint of one of my favorite characters here and I'm going to let you guess who it is because he influenced the story. Oh, um. TikTok. <laughs> yes. TikTok, the Royal Army of Oz. TikTok. The first robot in literature. So he was a wind-up copper round bowl of a fella. You have then- to send that to me so I can post that on the interview, uh, the yeah. piece of art. That's great. Yeah, there's a great screen capture that shows yeah. the art and a little blurb of the story. Okay. So yeah, uh, Copper, uh, the short story is about a robot in the near future who develops an interesting ability after his person, mm-hmm. Keel Wiltshire, undergoes tremendous grief. Um, it's a it's a touching story, and it's it's kind of wacky, just like the Oz books and like Wonderland. So, uh, and Copper is a very interesting character. I love writing robots. I just there's robots in a lot of the stuff I write. Even the end at the end of this lantern has some really interesting. Um, house bots that perform multiple functions depending on the time of day or night. Um, you know, so it's all, I've always been fascinated, but the TikTok is one of my favorites. Although, you know, I mean, the sawhorse was pretty great too. I couldn't help for the sawhorse, you know, and then um, I've always loved the dynamic between the, the Tin Woodman and Scarecrow, the buddies, um, even, you know, flawed as, she was Eureka the cat was kind of fascinating. I actually have illustrated Ozma and Belina, by the way, um, 
and sort of that Art Nouveau style. So I love illustrating the Oz characters. Right. That's well. another aspect of your talent uh, as an illustrator and an artist, which is uh, we could feature uh, whatever uh, art you'd like to share when well, we or do. Or Belina the, or both. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, I, uh, I've really enjoyed this. I, um, I'm a huge fan of Carl Sagan, and he has a quote uh, about imagination um, that imagination will often carry us to worlds that never were, but without it, we go nowhere. You have used your imagination to carry us off into many different directions and stories, and I think my readers and my listeners are going to enjoy to discover you and your work, and I hope they'll uh, pick up some of your novels and uh, enjoy them as much as I have. So thank you for being on uh, All Things Alice. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks so much, Frank. It's been great talking to you. You haven't even paid me from last time. I haven't watched Halo either. I'm going to summarize Halo Season 2 based on the Watching Now Halo podcast from Couch Soup. This is going to be fun. So Chief could be crazy. <laughs> Cortana's had a facelift. We're a bit mixed. Quan and Soren's story is really boring. Is is it over yet? Reach is f***ed. Reach for the stars. You all are gonna die. Spartans have a new leader called Ackerson. More like Dickerson. Apparently McKee is alive? She didn't die on screen, so she's probably not dead. Key's definitely not dying. Right, right, right. And the flood is coming. There's the water on this planet. What do I know? You should be listening to the Watching Now Halo podcast everywhere. Podcasts are available. Where's my money, Drew?